The scripture reading this morning will be from James chapter 1. You can turn there and stand as you find it. James 1, and I'll begin in verse 5 through 18. James 1, 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures." And I'll pray. God, we again just thank you so much for your life that you've given to us in Christ, the free gift, Lord, that, that you just are looking for us to accept in faith. And we thank you, God, for your, um, your availability to us, that, that you have not just wiped away our sins, but you have made yourself completely available to us, God, and that we can live in a relationship with you. And I pray that as we look at your word, God, that we would um, just grow in our understanding of you and your ways, and that we would cherish this gift of life with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we started James last Sunday, and we only got through the first four verses where James is talking about the importance. In fact, he puts it in the imperative to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that they produce endurance. And that endurance, if we let it have its perfect result, will result in us being made perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. But we do often lack in wisdom. And um, I was reminded um, this week in, in, we're t- in Bible school, His Hill, we're teaching through Matthew, and, and I've been looking at some of the characteristics of being childlike. And ch- children are humble, and they are typically not very self-conscious, which is fun to watch. Um, and in that humility, they just don't really give much thought to themselves. Last Sunday after church, we went over with some of the kids and grandkids to Mary's Tacos, and Jack is three years old, and he was staring at the fountain that's in the back, and, and I kind of had an idea what he was thinking, and I said, Jack, you can pee in that fountain. <laughs> His parents immediately said, no, Jack, no, no, he'll do it, he'll do it, Dad, no. 
But even funnier was when we asked him to pray. And Jack, would you like to pray before we eat? Yes, I will pray. And so he bowed his head and held hands with us and said, God, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this food. I really don't know much about praying. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> no pause. Thank you for the food. I don't know much about praying. In Jesus' name, amen. And we all laughed. He wasn't sure why we were laughing. It's not so easy for we adult people to acknowledge that we don't know much about anything. And yet we don't. And this is what this passage starts out with, is asking for wisdom. Sheep are pretty dumb. They have no power of self-direction. I've said before, if anybody believes in evolution, explain to me why sheep still exist. <laughs> because they shouldn't be alive. They can't live without a shepherd. They have no way to defend themselves. They have no way to even know how to um, get in from one pasture to another. They, they're very, very helpless creatures. We are sheep. We have no power of self-direction within us. Major Thomas used to preach a whole sermon about how all animal life has instinct. We do not have instinct. And God did that for a reason, so that we would be utterly dependent upon Him, that we come to God for knowledge in everything. We are always going to be helpless, we will always be sheep, and we need the Lord and His wisdom for everything. And so God creating us without really any sense of instinct, without the power of self-direction, we are lost without Him. And that causes us to hopefully turn to Him rather than to other sources of knowledge. So this starts out and says, if you lack wisdom, because he just said, if, if endurance have its perfect result, you will lack in nothing. But if you lack wisdom, which we all do, and again, it's in the imperative. Let him ask of God and keep on asking. But it's a command to, that we live in this disposition, this attitude that I am constantly asking God for wisdom because I am constantly in need of it. What do we do when we're facing trials? I mean, this is the context here. What is to be our response when facing trials? In some situations, wisdom is to flee. When Joseph was in the trial with Potiphar's wife, wisdom said, run, get out of the house. And that was a very wise response. Daniel couldn't flee. He was a captive in Babylon. There was no place he could go to. And so Daniel needed wisdom of how to stay, how to live a righteous and godly life in a very ungodly situation. We look at the life of Paul when he faced trials, and sometimes he fled. He would just go to the next city. Other times, he stayed put. So clearly there's no, he didn't see that there was an absolute that every time there's a trial, you should run. Nor did he think that it was an absolute that you should just stay. And so Paul 
is indicating to us that we need wisdom. We seek God for how we should respond to the trials that we are in. Which begs the question, what is wisdom? And sometimes the Bible uses wisdom as just simply practical knowledge. Now that's not always because knowledge is knowledge. But when you look at things like the life of Daniel, it says that God gave him wisdom in every area of knowledge. And so he was given wisdom with the sciences and with language and all kinds of things. God just blessed Daniel and his friends with great wisdom. But that wasn't enough. Because even though God was pouring out practical knowledge on Daniel, he still needed wisdom for how to approach his pagan superiors to live a godly life in their culture. And so he prayed and he, and he sought wisdom. God, how do I go to this guy that's in charge of me and ask him for permission not to drink their wine and eat their food? God gave him wisdom. So God wants to do both. He wants to be the source of wisdom. I believe this goes back to the Garden of Eden. And again, I'm not arguing that there's no place for universities and education and training and apprenticeships. I get it. We all need that. But all the forms of, of teaching should not presume to take the place of direct knowledge from God. It's like going to the doctor should not presume to take the place of going to God. But in trusting God, I will go to the doctor because God has given knowledge to the doctors to help me. And that's ca the case across the board. But nonetheless, we, we understand that like in the Garden of Eden, the reason for that knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they could not eat from is because I believe God was just illustrating to them, you can seek knowledge and wisdom apart from me, or you can just depend upon me. You don't need to experience evil, bad. I should just be able to tell you this is good and this is bad and that should be enough. And a wise person will say, well, God said it, that's enough. That's not foolishness, that's wisdom. It's folly to say, well, I need to experience it myself. And so God wants to be the absolute source of wisdom in our life. And so when he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, he means that. He's not saying don't go to school, don't go to university, don't get counseled. not saying don't read your Bible, but he's saying you look to God as you get counsel, as you read your Bible, as you go to school, you look to God. God is the one who supplies wisdom. Practical knowledge, but more importantly, more to the heart, of it, wisdom, and I'm quoting Arnold Frutenbaum here, is the practice of righteousness in daily living. And that's good. That's how do I practice righteousness in daily living when daily living is full of trial? What does righteous living look like in a fallen world full of trials? And we need to remember that ultimately, wisdom is the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.24 The Lord Jesus Christ is the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. Wisdom is more than available to us. I'll come back to this passage here where we're told to ask God for wisdom, but that's not really a new thing. In the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, we're told that wisdom is standing on the street corner shouting at us, come here and eat and drink. I have prepared a bounty for you. Proverbs 8.1, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice on the top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet? She takes her stand beside the gates at the opening to the city at the entrance of the door. She cries out to you, O men, I call and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones discern prudence and O fools discern wisdom. Listen, for I shall speak noble things and the opening of my lips will produce right things. From my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who, has, who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my wisdom and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice is gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. In a chap chapter 9 of Proverbs, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maiden. She calls from the top of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come and eat of my food and drink of my wine that I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding." Wisdom is available. Amazing how God beckons us, come and ask. And again, it's not just a request, it is a command. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. Why do we go to God and ask? Why is this important to God? He doesn't say, read more books, get more degrees. And there is a place for those things. But true wisdom comes from God. And he says, ask God. Ask God. In doing so, it is an, it is an acknowledgement of our need for God. It is an acknowledgement that all true wisdom and knowledge comes from God. But also, it keeps us relational. We are so prone to make the Christian life mechanical and formulaistic. And we have our principles. Long as you live by your principles, life is going to go well. Well, how's that working for you? It is a personal relationship with God. And prayer is very personal. And God is saying, ask me. It's about the relationship. Come to me and ask. Asking God for wisdom keeps us relational and not formulistic in our faith. We acknowledge that we need Him and His wisdom. We are acknowledging that we live from Him, not from past experience, not from personal ability, or even from biblical principles. Jesus, I need you to give wisdom 
now in this circumstance. Sometimes, God, we are in a crisis situation and we ask God for wisdom and we do not feel any wiser for having asked. I talked about this with Solomon when we looked at his life. And we may not feel any wiser for having asked, but the promise here is not that I will make you feel wise. The promise is I will give you wisdom. Sometimes a decision simply has to be made. You have to make it. And so we cry out to God in that moment of crisis, God, I'm looking to you. Fill my mouth with the words that you want me to speak. And you step forward in faith. I can't tell you how many times I've seen God supply wisdom in those kinds of situations. And even in the time that it came up to have to speak, I still don't feel like I have the wisdom. And yet later I'm wanting to take notes because I'm going, that sure didn't come from me. God did that. Other times we just need time. And God has given us the time. And He wants us to think and to pray and to seek counsel. He wants us to read His Word. And God will slowly unveil something to us. But many times it is simply in the moment. Don't know how to respond in that moment to that child. Don't know how to respond to that person who's asking that question. And in all of it, we feel undone, if we're honest, if we're humble, because we know that we can't speak for God. God must speak. Speak, Lord. Speak to me. Speak through me. And the Lord promises to do so. He gives to all men generously. He's not stingy about this. He's actually generous. That is his nature, to give generously. He gives without reproach. He doesn't despise us. He doesn't um, berate us for asking. Sometimes teachers can say things like, really? That's a stupid question. Or make a person feel dumb for asking the question. God never does. He's happy we ask. No question is a dumb question to God. He wants us to seek Him for wisdom in every single situation. And not just rely on our past experience or the depth of our training, but we look to God. God, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to say? And He is very happy to answer that request. But he says, and again, I hope before leaving that verse, I hope you get what he's saying here. It is a supernatural life. It is not a life of just principles and formulas. It is a personal relationship with God. We are commanded to come to God and ask and see the miracle of God giving wisdom as we need it. What a blessing. What a gift God has given us. And he is fully available, fully at our disposal for every situation we will ever encounter. But he says, ask in faith without any doubting. So again, God has said this and God is true to his word. He will do what he has said. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He, there's not anything in him that guides him. He is being pushed by what is outside of him. Pushed around by every wind of doctrine. Tossed about by the surf of the sea. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways, totally contrary 
to the nature of God, who is our rock. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Again, James is a lot like Proverbs, and it just seems like these statements are, are not really connected. But that's not all true. There is, there is, there's got to be some slight connection to each one of these statements. And I think here that what he's saying is, um, in one of the things that trials does is no matter what your status is in life, it exposes what is common to all men. We need direction. We need wisdom. And no matter how poor you are, your, your lack of provision, your need financially, he says is actually a high position. And the high position would, in, in one sense, you read commentaries on this and they'll say, well, it's about your position in Christ, that you are seated in the heavenlies and that you are a child of God and that, and that you were sealed till the day of redemption. All that is true and that is our high position. But that's true of the rich man as well. So what is not true of the rich man that the poor man has over him is that the poor man is living in circumstances that Jesus lived in. And so that is his high position, is that he is actually in his poverty living in the circumstances that Jesus lived in because Jesus lived as a poor man. And there's, there's something, there's a wisdom and a grace that God can bring to us in poverty that you cannot get in wealth. I'm reminded of the, of the um, proverb 28.11 that says that the wise, it says, the rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor man who has understanding sees through him. Wealth can be a form of, can, can create deception. You know, that I'm smarter than other people. I'm better than other people. I've succeeded in it, and, I'm, and, and it, can, it can just create a real deception. But the poor man who has understanding sees through him. One of the things that can come with poverty is actually a clarity of what's really important, of what's significant in life. What are the best things in life? And that is a good thing. And so the poor man should glory in his high position. There are things that he is seeing and experiencing and knowing that you can only learn as a poor man. And you are certainly more in identification with Christ than if you were a rich man. So the poor man, the brother of humble circumstances, should glory in his high position. And the rich man should glory in his humiliation. There should be just a basic understanding that I am blessed by God and I cannot take credit for the blessing that I'm experiencing. It is God's grace. There ought to be, with rising wealth, greater humility. We don't deserve it. It is simply God's goodness. Wherever the blessing is, there should never be that thought, look what I have done. Beware you're acting like Nebuchadnezzar. And he can strike you down in a moment. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. 
The rich man is not an oak. He is grass. And he needs to remember that. Our wealth is not our fortress. God is our fortress. There is a blessing now. It's not something that's just later for the future, but it's something now as indicated in verse 12. Blessed is a man right now who perseveres under trial. Right now, there is a blessing as we persevere under trial. For once he has been approved, as the trials produce the maturity, the the growth in faith, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. It would seem that these are rewards, acknowledgments that God gives to us when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so they're not necessarily going to be physical crowns. Um, The word there is diadem. And these are not diadems. This is another Greek word for the crown. And so it's not the crown of of a ruler. It's not the crown of a king. It's more of the crown of you've, you've um, accomplished something, that you've been rewarded with something. So if somebody ran in the Greek games and they won the race, they would be given an, a, an, um, a, a, a perishable crown. And that kind of crown is because they have won, they have accomplished something. And that's the word that's being used here. And so when we are before the Lord, He will crown us with the crown of life if we endure in the trials that we are in. It's not a reference to eternal life because we already possess that. So it seems to be a reference to a kind of quality of life. But for that reason, I kind of think He's not just talking about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. I think He's talking about the blessing is now and the crown of life is now. That as we trust God, come to Him for wisdom and grace in the trials that we're going through, that God blesses us now and we begin to experience the life of God in a way that others aren't. As we stay and trust God for the grace and power to endure in the trials that He gives us. And don't we see this? Again, some of the finest people that we ever meet in this life are the ones who have suffered the most. And there is life about them in the midst of their suffering. I believe that they are being crowned with life now as they are enduring by the grace and wisdom of God the sufferings that they are going through. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. And in the context, what's the temptation? To not endure. To just Throw in the towel. And we've all been there. But let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Again, remember the context. Being tempted to not endure. To throw in the towel. And don't we justify many times and say, well, God would not want me to suffer like this. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be blessed. This cannot be the will of God. And we see the the escape hatch. And we go, it's real easy to get out of this. It makes you wonder when the divorce rate in the United States between believers and, and unbelievers is the same. If there are a lot of Christians 
that are being tempted to get a divorce and thinking it is from God. When it is not. That is not from God. God will not tempt you, is what this passage is about. He will give you the grace to endure, the wisdom to endure if you ask Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God's giving me the escape hatch here. God is, is the one who's tempting me to do what otherwise I would say is sin. For God cannot be tempted by evil. One writer said, you could translate that as he is untemptable. It is not in his nature. It is not in his essence. There is no way it is impossible for God to be tempted by evil. Therefore, when you are tempted to do something that God would never do, don't say it's God who's putting this thought into your mind. It cannot be Him. I, to me, this is becoming more and more important the older I get. And it's, I've, I read one theologian who called it the doctrine of essentialism. And what he's talking about is we have to get back to the essence of who God is. And God cannot act contrary to His essence. And so that is, that is basic theology. And all morality is derived from theology. So if God cannot act contrary to who He is, then God cannot will for you to do what is contrary to His own essence. And that's what He's after here. That we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That we would be like Him. What is true of God and His character would be our character, which is formed through tribulation and trial. This is what he's after. He's not after giving me an escape hatch for every single trial. But again, wisdom is needed. Because there are those trials where God says, I've provided a way out. You don't need to stay here and suffer. And there are many other things where we simply are taking an option out that God has not provided. We all do this, don't we? We talk about the different ways that we self-medicate, whether it's TV or pornography or recreation or drugs, but all the different ways are just escape hatches rather than coming to God and saying, God, I need your wisdom and your grace for enduring at this time. God will not tempt you ever to do what is contrary to his own essence. Each one is tempted, make no mistake about it, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. He's not even blaming the devil here. And the devil is called the tempter. But he just doesn't even bring that up. He says, you're being tempted because of what is in you. Not because of what is in God. Not because of the devil, though he just he doesn't even bring that up. It is temptation uniquely hits us according to our personality. So no two people are going to be tempted in exactly the same way. I'll just read a little bit from Oswald Chambers on this because I feel like he has some good thoughts on it. Temptation is not sin. It's not from God, but it is not sin. It is the thing that we are bound to meet if we are men. Many of us, however, suffer from temptations from which we have no business to suffer simply because we have refused to let God lift us to a higher place where we would face temptations of another order. A man's disposition on the inside, 
That is, what he possesses in his personality determines what he is tempted by on the outside. The temptation fits the nature of the one tempted and reveals the possibilities of the nature. Every man has the setting of his own temptation and the temptation will come along the line of the ruling disposition. Some people are tempted in ways that I do not typically, I'm not tempted. Other people are not tempted in the way that I would be tempted. Temptation hits us according to our own personality. Temptation is a suggested shortcut to the realization of the highest at which I aim. Not towards what I understand as evil, but towards what I understand as good. Temptation is not something we may escape. It is essential to the full-orbed life of a man. Beware lest you think you are tempted as no one else is tempted. What you go through is the common inheritance of the race, not something no one ever went through before. God does not save us from temptation. He nourishes us in the midst of them. He grows us in the midst of them. In another place, Chambers says, the yielded life is the tempted life. He says, no one was ever more tempted than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you yield your life to him, temptations don't go away, they increase. The yielded life is the tempted life. And the more yielded we are, the more tempted we will be. Just don't be tempted to think God is the cause of it. He is not. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Well, I thought lust is sin. It is. Jesus says, Matthew, anyone looks on a woman to lust for her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So lust is sin. So James must be saying, now he's moving from the, from the internal mental aspect of sin to the physical act of sin. When lust, the internal, is conceived, it gives birth to the act of sin. And when sin is accomplished, it always brings forth the same thing, death. These are absolutes. Reminds me of when God spoke to Cain and said, sin is crouching at the door. You must master it, or it will master you. There is no way around this. It is, a, it is as given, it is a law, a spiritual law as much as the law of gravity. Lust produces sin, and sin produces death. And we cannot sin and not experience death. Do not be deceived my beloved brother. Does that verse 16 refer to the verses before, the verses afterwards? Probably both. But certainly to the verses before. Don't be deceived. What you're being tempted to do if it is contrary to the nature of God is not God's will for you. It is evil. Anything contrary to the nature of God is evil. Don't be tempted to think that you can get away with it. You may not be caught. God in His mercy may hide it. But all sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. 
we have to stop in our tracks and say, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. Do not let this thing continue. If temptation to live, in the temptation to live on our own terms, in the temptation to live to escape the trials and to insulate ourselves from them, and to get out of this life all that we can, there are three things that we should remember. And they're in verses 17 through 19. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So the first thing we remember is that God is good. He is not the origin of temptation. Lust is. And that lust leads to sin and sin to death. God is untemptable in His essence. He tempts no one. The origin of temptation is our own desires and lusts, which are unique to each of us. The world and the devil are not even given credit here. But we need to remember that God is not the origin of temptation and sin. But rather, God is good. And He is the source of all that is good. And even though we may be like you know, waves tossed about here and there, God is not. He never changes. So again, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's not like a wave tossed about. Wouldn't we wish that every time somebody experienced good, they would thank God? Instead of every time they experience bad, they curse God. Boy, when, when folks do that, Christians and unbelievers alike, we demonstrate that we could not be more wrong in our theology. God is not the source of evil. But He is the only source of good. So He should never be cursed for the bad that comes into our life. He is not the source of it. But He should always be praised and thanked for the good that comes into our life. He is the only source of good. Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. In Him there is no variation. He never changes. And there is no shifting shadow. There is no gray with God. He is just brilliant light. And then we need to remember that in the exercise of God's will, He brought us forth by the Word of God, by the Word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. God is not the origin of temptation. God is good and He is the source of all that good. And we need to remember when facing temptation, particularly the temptation to quit, that he is, we are God's creation. We have been brought into this, we have been made his creation by his will, according to his word. We belong to him. Sin is not who we are. We've been made by him and for him, and we are not our own. I think that these three things, I know in my life, are things that I have to remember on a regular basis. When I am tempted to know this is not from God, 
that anything that is less than what is true of God that I'm being tempted by is not of God. When I'm being tempted, I need to remember my God is good. And, if so, and He is good and I can trust Him and He never changes. And that when I'm going through various trials, I cannot let go. That even though the things may be bad, they may be unbearable, and I can't even think about how all this works out. But I know God is good. And that thirdly, I am His. My, my beloved, I'm sorry, in, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. I think He's specifically talking about the Jewish believers that had been dispersed being the first fruits among His creatures. But He's talking about that God is, is wanting to work in us and to prove in us His perfect will and that He is accomplishing something in us as we come to Him in our trials for wisdom and for grace and let God produce in us what only He can accomplish. We all lack wisdom, whether rich or poor, and how to live righteously in the trials of life. But we all know what God is after, and that is Christ-likeness. We can ask Him in confidence for the wisdom that we lack, and He will give that wisdom. We should never be deceived to think that God is tempting us when we are tempted to not endure. He is not. It is our lust, our desires that are the source of the temptation. God is good. He is for us. He is not against us. He saved us by His power. And He is the one who sustains us and keeps us. We all go through great trials. Um, the longer you live, the more trials you're going to see. But God stands unchanging and true. And whether we're a brand new Christian or somebody that has known the Lord for decades, His wisdom is available without reproach, generously, to all who would ask. And I can't, it seems to me, I just, it's pretty hard to overemphasize, especially in our culture, where we have so readily available to us so many options for escape. That is so important for us to hear that God's option many times is endurance and not escape. He wants us to remain. He wants us to seek Him for the wisdom of how to live in these circumstances to the glory of God. We have many brothers and sisters in this world who would never have an option of escaping from their trials. A brother today from India, and he was testifying this morning in Sunday school class about some of those circumstances. We've been blessed to live in a country where you can go to the grocery store and have to decide between 20 different cereal brands. And it seems like a blessing that whenever the trials come, we can quickly get out of them. Just quit that job. Quit that church. Wherever it's difficult, just quit. And it's a wonder, it's no wonder that we have become so morally weak. When with every trial, we look to escape, rather than seeking God for the wisdom 
to how to endure. God, do you want me to escape? And we always hear yes. <laughs> it's like the churches that emphasize prophecy. And every prophecy is positive. <laughs> no, that's convenient. Do we really hear God say, stay? This is not something I want you to run from. This is something I want you to trust me in. That we might become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As I said last Sunday, there's no other way for God to accomplish what he is after in us, except through trial. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you that you are good and unchanging. You are never the source of evil. You will never tempt us toward evil. And that we belong to you. It's by your power and your will that we are your children. And I thank you, God, that you do. You promise it is an absolute of your word that you will always give wisdom as we come to you and cry out to you. Wisdom for how to live righteously in a fallen world. And sometimes it's wisdom just in making daily decisions, God. But I thank you, Lord, that you know that we are sheep in need of a shepherd, and you are a very good shepherd. And you've promised to direct our steps, and you've promised God to supply for us in Christ all that we need. And I pray that we would just have the most fundamental and basic wisdom of all, and that is to know, God, when to stay and to know your grace for enduring. And we thank you that in this desire and search for wisdom, Lord, that you will always lead us to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. In Christ's name, amen.